0: This week, a roundtable with some of the leading names in audio fiction criticism and production. Oh, and I'm there too. Stick around for a conversation with Elena Fernandez-Collins, Will Williams, and many more, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And I'm still congested. By Cracky, but not as badly. I just got back from PodCon in Seattle, and we'll have some sweet content up from a rogue panel that friend of the show Betsy Palmer recorded over that weekend. But for now, here's a non-PodCon panel, one that friend of the show and spouse of the Betsy, Jeffrey Gardner, convened a few months ago. It's got me on it. We wanted to discuss the state of criticism in audio fiction. Where is it relative to film, television, books, theater, music... So when Jeffrey got the panel together, they gathered up both critics and creators to talk about it. This panel had seven people on it, many of whom have been on this program before. Jeffrey, of course, a podcast director and producer in Chicago who's currently getting their master's in sound arts at Northwestern, Uh, podcast critic and reviewer Elena Fernandez-Collins, who co-hosted the Love and Luck episode with me, podcast critic and reviewer Will Williams, whom you'll remember from the RDR episode about hoax fiction and also her own titanic internet presence, Misha Stanton, audio dramatist extraordinaire from the Whisper Forge, Paul Bay of The Big Loop and The Black Tapes, and Sarah Montague, the host of WNYC's Selected Shorts and also a professor at the New School. Oh, and me. Yes, I too was there, possibly just to look pretty. So, enjoy this roundtable created for Northwestern University's Sound, Arts, and Industries program by Jeffrey Gardner.
1: Hello, my name is Jeffrey Gardner, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our online roundtable on critical practice and audio drama. To kick things off, we'll go around the virtual room and have our panelists introduce themselves.
2: Uh, My name is Elena Fernandez-Collins. I'm an audio journalist and critic. Uh, I am the creator of the audio dramatic Newsletter.
3: Uh, My name is Paul Bay. Uh, I'm uh, executive producer of Black Tapes and The Big Loop, and I'm calling from Vancouver, British Columbia. My name is Sarah Montague. I am the producer of the
4: public radio spoken word program, Selected Shorts, and I'm also an audio producer and director.
0: Hi, my name is David Reinstrom. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm the producer of a podcast called Radio Drama Revival and a former slash intermittent podcast fiction writer and producer myself.
5: Uh, I'm Misha Stanton. I'm a podcast producer, voice director, and sound designer with many credits that you've probably heard of.
6: My name is Will Williams. I'm a podcast critic. I primarily write for Will Williams reviews, but I've written for some other sources around as well.
1: Uh, All right. Well, thank you all so much. To set ourselves up with some context, I'd like to begin with a brief quote from Sarah Montague's Towards a Poetics of Audio that I hope will give us some shared context for what we mean by critical language and practice. The language should be expressly designed to describe our forms, tropes, and themes, but with reference to the larger culture and word of ideas. And the practice should be constant, robust, and open, with critical tools wielded to help us better understand our work and ourselves, and to help our public to better understand us as artists. Criticism does not imply negative criticism. It is an act of engagement and assessment with myriad roads to comprehension, appreciation, and investigation of work. So let's start with a foundational question. Do you think audio drama would benefit from a robust and established critical language and practice? If so, what is our first step towards getting there? Uh, And Sarah, actually, if you want to jump in first here, I would love to hear how in in the last few years... Uh, your thinking on this has changed or remained the same or grown, or any thoughts you have there?
4: I had a chance to address this question again um, after the Third Coast Festival of last year, when Anne Hepperman gave me an opportunity to write a longer-form essay about it. And it was extremely interesting to do that, because... I opened up the question to a number of other colleagues and found very, very divided space around this. To me, it seemed absolutely clear, and I think this may be hardly because I came from a fairly classic approach to literature and culture in which the world, and then, of course, the theatre, in which the world of criticism grew up, in a sense, coterminously with the art form that it began to address. And so the two things felt to me in such a, key relationship, the one helping to frame and define the other, that I was surprised to find that in our field, many people felt this would result in fussy over-legislation of form, um, that it was also professionally a difficult model to imagine sustaining, because of course, one of the things that drove it in print and theatre was the fact that there there was a print culture that supported and sustained critics, and that our culture doesn't really survive in that way and platforms in which to make this an engaged and consistent presence for the field was difficult. So it it opened up more questions than I had imagined while I was busy simply assuming we could do nothing but benefit. I still maintain that having that language is going to be an important way to help to mature the form and to, even though we are seeing tremendous resurgence, to still... Earn
1: for it its proper place as a cultural form, Ellie. I would love to hear your thoughts on this as uh, also a a critic and writer
2: i I think i I agree with Sarah uh, in in that having this established language and especially an established practice will help legitimize uh, the work of audio uh, outside especially outside of areas that already have. A very robust um, audio drama legacy. Um, and it would help if we know that, that this critical language has an understanding, uh, uh, creates an understanding for uh, other creators, audio producers, uh, other critics of things like what's expected and what norms are out there to be broken to create new experiences, and how to avoid falling into a rut, um, and how to avoid, um, uh, re-recreating oppressive structures, um, which has happened a lot and has, uh, become very ingrained in things like a film and its long history of film criticism.
6: Yeah, I think that we can, we can see that in how Ellie and I have written on works that, specifically defy the medium in things like what's the frequency, for instance, um, where discussing these forms that have existed is not there to say, this is the blueprint that you must follow, but this is the blueprint. How can you innovate?
2: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, actually what's the frequency is a very good example Um, in order to talk about uh, what people expect from podcasting and how you can break that in an audio drama. To
4: create okay. I was thinking too of the fact that one of the things that a critical structure does that we're kind of lacking in, I happen to be teaching a, um, I was part of a workshop yesterday in which I was kind of the ghost of Christmas past. Without <laughs> that, people have a very limited sense of the past of their own form. Mm-hmm. So they wind up often at a starting point that is iterative because they haven't realized that there is in fact a body of work behind them, or ways of, or of imaginatively reconceiving the, the culture of the past because they aren't aware that it exists.
0: I was thinking about this, this is David, I was thinking about this as I was reading Sarah's piece towards a poetics uh, of audio, um, because I remembered Vaguely, and I've never read it. Um, this the the works um of Rudolf Arnheim that were recommended to me by um by Professor Verma um, as they related to radio. and I, I I feel as though a study, I have two thoughts. One is that uh, you're right. Like a study of of audio aesthetics seems very cut off in the North American context from the continental approach to audio. Um, where there is not the same kind of discontinuity between the classic radio age and the present. And the second is that I was just feeling acutely the other day the lack of a unified critical language when I was trying to describe a thing that happened in the finale of um, Eli McElveen and Sean Howard's uh, Alba Salix uh, season finale um, fantasy medical comedy series. Now, I, I don't want to spoil the end of... This season for anyone, but there was a thing that happened. I I won't. I wouldn't dare. Um, But I I had to resort to calling it pulling a Dryden um, because (laughs) what? (laughs) Now, I suppose I should describe what I mean by that. Now, there's a reference everyone's going to (laughs) get. I don't know. I mean, it depends on whether or not we're talking about uh, (laughs) Samuel Dryden or John Dryden. Um, But I mean, I mean John Dryden, the uh, contemporary audio dramatist. Um, and what I mean by that is that what happened in the scene was that we saw a, a shift, what I would call, so I come from a film background. That's what I studied, uh, in university. Um, oh, look at me adjusting my register because there's a British person here. Um, when I was, (laughs) there was a, what I would call a camera angle shift, right? Which doesn't seem appropriate in a non-visual medium, but what it was, was this, this perspective shift that occurred um, continuously between one set of characters in one part of the diegesis and another set of characters much farther away from one locus of sound, and I didn't know what to call it except to say, "Oh, that's what John Dryden does in a lot of his work: is that he creates audio establishing shots and then cuts in close." How and
4: Sean also came from film,
0: right? Uh, and so I, I felt critically impoverished, like lacking the vocabulary to adequately describe that editing maneuver, that like production maneuver on its own terms.
6: And going back to what Sarah said about knowing our own history, I would argue that uh, many, especially many young audio drama listeners um, might might not catch the reference. They might not know the work of John Dryden. They might not be able to pull on that language of pulling a Dryden, which I think is fantastic. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we we need this language. We need something codified, so that we we know that there is this history and we first off pay homage to that and we, you know, recognize the great work that's been done, but also so that we have a way of explaining these phenomena that happen in this specific medium because there isn't a language for that yet, really.
4: I also think, and I'm interested to hear what um, Ellie and Will think because you write on this topic, that the other place I felt really impoverished is in discourse around... Um socially motivated work or work where we, we can feel that the work is participating in a larger social discourse for which there are evolved vocabularies. Caitlin Prest is an example. If she were a mm-hmm. filmmaker, there would be a wonderful way to describe the transgressions in that work, the bravery, the larger world of feminist culture and gender and neutral culture that she's participating in. In, in other mediums, that, that available that is available to us, and yet it's not as easily available to us in this world.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry. I was thinking about, um, Caitlin pressed the shadows, which came out yeah. uh, this year. Uh, I, I had an interview with Caitlin um, and Will and I have both reviewed as well that that work.
4: I haven't heard it yet. I was thinking of some of her earlier work or at the, heart. at the
2: heart. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Her work is all phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is incredibly necessary. I think that, I think the audio is so overlooked in this regard while being so participatory and adding so much to that culture. Um, to those cultures, it's discussing and those phenomena in the world. Um, this this kind of goes back to Jeffrey's initial question of of what's our first step. And I think if we had critics who were in these established uh, media criticism mm-hmm. sources we we would be able to discuss audio on the same level as film or tv or literature or video games all of which do mm-hmm. have at this point a rich history of criticism i think that it's wild that people were saying that there's no way to sustain criticism of these new mediums when there's no print given one of the sites i write for is polygon mm-hmm. which is specifically a video game criticism and and journalism platform. These these platforms exist and they've they've existed for a while now. I don't that yeah, that (laughs) that's
2: not new.
1: (laughs) If I can jump in there for a second. Um I think the example of Polygon and any of the you know the the numerous uh really great video game reviewing websites is a great contrast. Why why do you think that a you know I'm gonna say relatively young medium Compared to stay, you know, theater on the stage, um, has a how? How did they acquire a robust and um, you know certainly prolific uh, critical community uh, so quickly? And 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 what do you think we can learn from that community in terms of building one for audio drama?
0: I think I have a kind of a cynical answer to that, which is that. Uh, computer gaming and video games are a multi-billion dollar industry annually Uh, and that that kind of of monetary expenditure creates a lot of like spare capital to throw around.
6: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, ultimately, ultimately my goal, what I would like to see happen is just to get Ellie and Will published in print form as quickly as possible because as I was like trying to pour over what to call the thing that Eli did in Alba Salix, just yesterday, I I found myself wishing that I still had my copy of uh, my film textbook, which is by David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson. And I was like, ah, if only I could just like leaf through that glossary and get it all the, you know, all the the classic techniques that were codified in like the 20s and 30s by the Soviet critics, or by Andre Bazin, like the 50s. Like I would have some kind of critical well to draw from. And so I think that if we just, if we get, if we get our friends to race to print first,
1: <laughs>
0: we can there, thereby codify the language without creating some kind of radio academy of arts and sciences that determines the terms for stuff
4: but yeah. mm-hmm. well, one of the other mm-hmm. things is how, how do we evolve this particular discourse because I wound up interviewing Julia Barton a phenomenal audio editor for this piece and she and I said you are the sort of person who's just on the cusp of having that vocabulary because it's the way you respond to material the granular level at which you work as an editor and of course this would hold for any of the really singular editors out there and she said yes but I'd be shooting myself in the foot because these are the people who employ me and I'm not going to suddenly rush to the other side of the table. She didn't say this precisely, but she was saying it would be very awkward to suddenly evolve a critical vocabulary in response to an environment in which I am regularly employed. So we're going to have to find some way to create a protected space for people Mm -hmm. who do this work or who are able to identify it as a viable choice other than the choice just to make. Or if you're making, you let people know that you're not making this.
1: So that's actually a a nice chance. I would love to Paul um Paul or Misha kind of as as people who are m- way more cemented in the kind of the creator space here what are your thoughts on um on the creation and development of this kind of discourse
5: I think that it's a worthy endeavor I think that racing to print doesn't sound like a viable strategy because print is racing away from itself at a equally rapid pace. I don't see why print is necessary. I think that it's a matter of... I mean, it's exactly what David said, is that there's incentive to create other critical languages because there is industry built around it, and there isn't quite yet a robust international audio drama industry or audio fiction industry. I think that, I mean, as far as I can see, we're getting close, so maybe something maybe a platform for that language will evolve naturally with the evolution of the industry itself. Uh, I think it's hard to sustain one without the other, honestly. Even, you know, an industry is only, I mean, I was going to say an industry is only as, you know, robust as its demand and its demand is only as robust as the knowledge of the industry. And then I remembered that black market industries totally exist and I feel bad for saying that. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely, it's definitely useful, especially as we try to create a history for ourselves. I'm going to be totally honest before I got into audio drama, I didn't listen to a single audio drama and while I was making my first one, didn't really care about the history very much.
4: Well, I like, I I just, I I didn't,
5: I, I came from theater and kind of wanted to do film, but never had any training in film. And I said, what can I do as a sound designer that's. Sitting at a desk so I don't have to do physical labor while disabled, and the sound designer's in charge, and I found podcasts. Um, so I, but I think that that was in a time when production was not where it is now. I think that the industry is finally finding a leg in the United States a little bit. Um, I mean, people listed, you know, as much as. We may talk about them otherwise in other spaces. Like people listed Bubble as their top one of their top podcasts this year, even if they don't listen to audio dramas. And hey, hey, it is a piece of fiction, and that gets it out there. That's what I mean, is that like as the industry evolves, a need for critical language about that industry arises naturally, but also people seeking that voice is what makes people is what like cements the discord, right? People have to want to read that before the articles get popular. (laughs) Does that make sense? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it's, I think you point something out really uh, interesting about the, when you mentioned bubble, um, one of the things that I was thinking about um, when considering, you know, this question about developing a critical language and whether it needs to be an authoritative body. um, I was thinking about how, we are already seeing in podcasting in audio creation this um ingraining process in, in the process thereof uh of other and i'm just going to like uh, like other like bad habits that i see in things like film criticism where independent art is which is often created by by marginalized people is considered lesser than mm-hmm. uh that audio that is created by a large uh, media corporation or a body that ha- you know just generally has a lot of money
5: i i agree ellie but i i fail to see how that's different than any other time or any other art medium in the entirety of human history <laughs> because well, uh i mean like can, can we swear in this jeffrey can i say swear words absolutely cool <laughs> uh capitalism's a needy bitch but you know it's it's, it's a mat like of course there's only going to be criticism of big budget things because like money gets it seen and of course there's going to be more chatter around shows that have the money to get themselves seen more and of course that space is populated with less marginalized communities than not um like, that's just, like, I, I failed to, I think the only reason people are indignant about it is because of the, I mean, we all talk about the low barrier to entry of podcasting, but it really is, like, because anyone can make one with, not no money, but, like, not much money, <laughs> you know, like, enough money that, like, even over the course of a few years, like, some people can scrape it together, um, Uh, that the the entry to this medium is so low and and formed on the internet which is itself like flat in places where it can still be flat um structure wise uh you you know but as money creeps into the industry the same template is going to take form in other arts industries with money in them um and I, i i'm not surprised i i'm disappointed but not surprised
6: Right.
2: I don't think I was, I don't think I was saying that I was surprised. Um, I hope not. Uh, I was just saying that if, if, if we are, if we are coming from a point where we have an impoverished critical language, where we don't have that authoritative body, where we, where we aren't published in major print, major online media outlets, um, and where uh, critics like Will and myself, for instance, are rarely getting hired to write consistently. That as we move forward, that at the very least, in the critical language, we think about the fact that that's just, that's how art works in a capitalistic society. Um, And that we try to combat that in any way that we can in our writing and in the way that we talk about things and maybe even in the things that we decide to talk about.
1: It also
4: empowers our listeners. Um, One of the books I cited in the later interview, in the later essay, was Better Living Through Criticism by A.O. Scott, um, the subtitle of which is How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. And he acknowledges aspects of the industry that are affected by consumerism and the monetization of the forms. But he's basically saying our society gets a better relationship with works of creation if we understand how to listen to them, look at them, engage with them.
1: So I'd actually love to pull on a thread there that Ellie had. Um, I think we have, yeah, we have a neat opportunity in that like we maybe we are clearly looking at um, money coming into our industry, hopefully, uh, and uh, a chance to work hard to build something other than what every other medium has had to deal with. Uh, I, would, I would love to hear if anyone has thoughts on how we can work to keep marginalized voices at the center of audio drama and keep uh, independent, smaller budget works at the center of audio. One, one part of that uh, picture is
3: having people at the top um, shouting out, people who are not getting the exposure that they should be getting. Like, mm-hmm. um, for example, the hashtag AudiodramaSunday uh, that a lot of people t- take part in on Twitter um, is an opportunity. But I don't see a lot of creators that, like, uh, I don't see a lot of creators, like a ton of creators who um, generate a lot of revenue with their projects sh- taking part in shouting out the the, the new voices. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, uh, for example, uh, you, you mentioned Alvin Salix. That's, I think... Brilliant. I think it's genius, but it's not being shouted out uh, enough by the pe- by the creators who have the the platform or the voice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure, I I I will say that I think that that people that do do an excellent job of this are number one you, Paul. I think Lauren Shippen does a really good job of raising raising boats with her tide. Um, I do think that it is important for us to cultivate, and I'm I'm talking about us from the creator side of my personality rather than the critic side of my personality. As to whether or not I'm actually a critic, we can discuss that later in the, I, in the, the copy points I saw. Um, I, I think that we do need to cultivate an ethic of
3: like pull people up after you. Mm-hmm. Certainly I think that is. Well, oh, sorry, I was just oh, gonna say, it could, because it's, it's, um, it's, gonna, it's changing quite rapidly. Like, I'm in the, um, right. so I have my feet, uh, uh, let's just say uh, there's a lot of podcasts being snatched up as IPs. For, for television and movies right now and there's a lot right. of money being thrown in which is attracting a lot of different types of writers there's it's not audio dramatists coming in with the, with the mind telling audio stories there's a lot of people coming in now into the space that are that want to be television writers primarily and are mm-hmm. using audio drama as a launching pad uh these are uh, and to to la- i've been approached so many times this year by by networks wanting like throwing me ideas can you write this and you get a piece of the pie when it comes to television. And I'm like, no, I can't. If it happens to my own ideas, that's fine. But I don't, wanna, I don't want to jump in to make your thing an audio thing to maybe become a TV thing. Like, if, if you want to jump in and make this purely an audio thing and, ma- and if it becomes a TV thing, we'll talk about that when it comes. But their goal is, so it's that kind of money coming in right now. And as that happens, this, this ethos of uh, uh, like shouting out uh, other voices, that's going to be drowned out. I'm afraid. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, uh, I think
5: it's it's a matter of incentivizing larger voices to be shouting out those smaller voices. And um, <laughs> I mean, the the independent audio drama community gets some traction with shaming people on Twitter into do into saying nice things. Um, but but it, it 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 doesn't always have to be negative reinforcement. But it is there there does have to be a way to incentivize larger names to continue to uplift smaller names. Um, in that sense, I do think that like a codified critical language does contribute towards that. I think that if people who contribute to a uniformed or unified critical language um, talk about that issue in within that same conversation and really sort of are critical in a uniquely industry-specific way, of the voices that aren't uplifting newer works um that they're i mean that's still negative reinforcement but like it's nicer <laughs> i guess than when we blast people on twitter
2: um i want to to refer to um phoebe wang's speech that she gave uh, uh at at yeah at third coast um people need to hire those voices Mhm. It's just straight up that people need to hire those voices. Uh they need to hire people of color. They need to hire uh non-binary and trans individuals. They need to hire um you know, all all of this um all these like marginalized voices that are not being hired or are in some cases being given things like fellowships that run out after 12 or 18 months and then their voice gets lost again. Um and Uh, Finding a way to enable that hiring process um, is a lot of work to continue to do as people who are already oppressed, um, but might be a good thing to also take into consideration when we are doing things like applying for or uh, sharing job postings for uh, places like, I'm not saying that, but the BBC and, and things like that, where there is a robust audio fiction, audio drama creation.
4: The reason for having a good critical realm because if you're inviting a new, a new people in, you want to be able to say, here is a received form which we are looking to you to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I think the behavior of um, director Ava DuVernay is really instructive in this regard. If you If you talk about the way That DuVernay brings her own production team into, she's like always turning back and giving credit to people from her own production team, and then they get jobs off of her recommendations. Um, And I think it's kind of changed the critical consensus in the United States about I I think a lot of times, and this is a real gutter jump, but I think a lot of times the the films that are directed by black people, specifically black women, get shunted into a Mm -hmm. specific channel. Like, oh, this is black cinema. Uh, And DuVernay and Ryan Coogler are demonstrating, well, no, that's ridiculous and racist and, like, black directors can make films for a general audience uh, and take Disney money, right? Um, I don't know. I I just I I find it fascinating and interesting and like a a useful template to align with what Ellie was talking about. I,
5: I agree. My my worry as a perpetual cynic is that like that, like methods up till this point haven't been good at incentivizing people like, you know, they're better than they've ever been before and still not great. Um, so I, I worry that without some radical new tactic, there isn't going to be enough incentive for industry leaders to uplift uh, marginalized voices. Mm-hmm. That's it. I don't have a, like a solution
1: for that. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just think... like a horrible
3: problem. I think about all the time. I think the only incentive is people cause people, industries tend to chase success and they find that pattern that made them successful. And if, if, if 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 um underrepresented peoples are leading that are, are they their projects are getting successful like commercially successful, that that'll be the incentive.
5: That is very fair and um, Paul, it's so good to seeing you to see you doing so well. And once once I think financial incentives
0: exist to create works within our field, uh, there might be more of a push towards inclusion writers, which are growing more popular in film.
6: I do worry that. If, if audio fiction and audio drama continues down a trend of being seen as profitable, especially in regards to like recent branded podcasts, which we've seen a a lot of in the last two to three years, um, instead of, instead of the marginalized creators being seen as the successful, it's just going to be these people put in place by these bigger brands with this bigger money who are often not of those marginalized identities which I also don't have a solution for. (laughs) I
5: I will say this. I did have a recent meeting with someone um, trying to put money into this game. And there was a, it, it was someone who was young. It was someone whose team was made up of young people who have all observed the entertainment industry over the past two years and who have been given a lot more free reign where their parent companies have said, uh, you know, podcasts are obviously the new thing, but old people don't know what's good about the new thing. So we need to get new people in here. And I think that there is, at least among the companies I've talked to, a general realization that if if media is going to continue to be the giant industry in the U.S. and elsewhere that it is, that new voices need to get in here that those new voices need to be voices we haven't been hearing for the past century um so that that is i will say a a heartening trend
4: and i'm all for enlightened self-interest if you persuade people in power they that they Mm -hmm. benefit by doing the right thing splendid
5: i don't care why they do it yes (laughs) i totally agree
2: yep
3: (laughs) What I, what I, what I am afraid—the the, the only thing I'm really afraid of be, uh, being drowned out. Not the only thing, but one of the major things is that because. Um Audio drama in the podcast form in North America is so young. Um, yeah. When when we launched the Black Taste three years ago, our role model was the one that already existed, the, the popular one, Night Vale. And oh, mm-hmm. we got our big bump when people, of fans of Night Vale started telling us, started emailing us, um, hey, you know they talk about you on the road. And we didn't even know they were on the radar. And so they sent us a recording of a Q&A after one of their shows. From several shows, and they said there's these two Canadians making the show called The Black Tapes. It's totally new. They use a journalist to take you through the story like serial. Uh, we think this is going to be a trend soon. <laughs> and they started, yeah. they started talking about us. And because that was our first exposure to audio drum, we thought, oh, this is the ethos. When you get a voice, you're supposed to shout out other people. And because Nightvale Vale were, were so inclusive. That was that was ingrained in us from the beginning. Um, So but because that was we thought that was the norm coming in because Mm -hmm. of them. So that's what I'm afraid of, that the
1: norm is going to be that norm is going to be drowned out. Mm. Well, I think I think there is something to be said for those of us who are in the community and are, are espousing those ethics so loudly to keep doing that, even as as new voices and people from other mediums where maybe there's not as much of an ethos of that. Uh, I also, continue.
5: I also think about, I, I think that th- again, this is a perfect place for a codified critical language of the industry so that it's not, you know, 18 individual criticisms of a casting choice or a writing choice or a production decision that harms marginalized communities and marginalized voices. I think that, that um, if 18 people write the same thing and, you know, a company will hear it a lot louder. A lot clearer. Mm -hmm. And
4: because we're starting with that as being an important part of the concept, because criticism, of course, wasn't. It was often quite exclusive. It did come from Mm -hmm. individual sensibilities, many of them privileged. And then the forms themselves had to begin and grow and change in response to the new worlds that were being created around them. We at least have the advantage of being conscious of that as essential from the outset. That, I think, gives us a very adventuresome place to begin.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Misha, I, I want to chase something there. Um, and, and this was kind of buried in one of our questions uh, from later, but uh, given that print is most likely dead, um, <laughs> how do we unite these voices into a critical language? What, what do you think are our, our first steps on that are?
5: I think it's, I think it's getting everyone into a room and talking about it, which you have done quite spectacularly here which uh Will and Ellie I know have been working incredibly hard on Will uh Will Williams's podcast problems discord is a hopping place for people who are creating and people who are talking about the creations get to talk about problems bold faced face to face with each other and that that community is international and friendly Above all things, friendly um, and welcoming is a monumental task that is that puts us well on the way to creating a unified language. You know, um, we also before Will's discord, we had an audio drama creators Slack channel that's been going, gosh, what, three years now?
1: Something like that. Um,
5: um, That where we all where where people who were creating around March, April 2016 Really came together and started sharing resources and helping each other and teaching people who don't have one skill or the other, you know, swapping skills. I know um, especially in the beginning, there are a lot of new audio drama podcasters were writers who didn't have another outlet for their writing. Um, but I come from a very technical background, so there were a lot of technical questions, and I'm happy to. Throw my technical knowledge out for everyone so that everyone knows what they're doing and their, art, their works can stand on their own. And I think that putting people together just by the nature of like, you know, colliding atoms creates a, a unified, codified language, which then if every single industry leader is using, people who consume the media will start using too.
4: And then I'd like to think of us as drawing on some of the other rich critical history, things that are not as easily drawn just from the techniques themselves, but from that way of joining them up with other forms of philosophical perspective.
1: Absolutely. A thing that we keep talking about is the the utility and the creation of a pantheon for audio drama, uh, a, a a history to look back on and say, uh, you know, and learn From creators who have come before us, Um, and I think you know there is there is certainly a degree to which just the fact that works uh, are now being digitized and made available has made that an easier task. But you know I'm struck. I I was speaking to Brendan Baker uh, recently at the Third Coast Festival, I believe, and um he had very interesting things to say about discovering the stereo field and and discovering what could be you know done there and i was struck that i had almost you know word for word the same conversation with david osman um from Firesign theater about discovering stereo and uh you know decades earlier. And it, it struck me that we, we are in a place where it's not just that we can't learn from past creators. As creators, I, I, I very much felt like I, for myself, I felt like I had to invent perspective drawing if I were, a, a, you know, a visual artist. Uh, and, you know, kind of seeing generations of people doing that over and over again. Um, I would love your thoughts on, on how this kind of uh, pantheon or passed down knowledge could help or, or hurt creators moving forward. I, I feel, I feel uh, <laughs> this, is, this is weird for me because I feel like uh, when we did the
3: black tapes, uh, we, we took advantage as producers of audio drama in North America that this knowledge had not been passed down on a critical side in North America, like there was a huge gap. What, what, what Sarah wrote about in her essay, um, I think she mentioned something about uh, we've been disconnected from our own history uh, in, in the context of audio drama in North America. And I, th- I, I think, I think if, if, for example, if um, someone from the BBC were to hear the first few episodes of the black tapes, they, they would think it, it was crap, I'm assuming. But we knew that North Americans hadn't really digested audio drama in a long time so we we could learn as we go like we weren't afraid to just let's let's practice as we go instead of polishing it first so well, uh, we took advantage of that gap
5: i do find it interesting also that like as i've observed the past couple years you know as audio drama has has gained more and more momentum that like the community at large in north america has adopted our lack of history into the history narrative <laughs> like the fact the like just what paul was saying that like th- they used the lack of knowledge as their springboard like that's foundational to modern audio drama in america <laughs> like the black tapes is one of the seminal works of american audio drama precisely because it like ignores the foundations or or plays into the general ignorance of the foundations um it's a similar thing that i heard to Uh, That I heard about American cuisine recently. Uh, I've been watching a lot of food shows recently that that American (laughs) that American cuisine is not defined by decades and decades of history and form and craft. It's it's predicated more on showing what is modern about American families and how they live and their their consumption habits and what they find comfortable but not necessarily historically so. It's very much of the moment, in the moment. Um, The difference between, you know, like 1950s salad aspects and what we eat today.
3: (laughs) I think because of the the lack of critical language in North America about audio drama, when we did, for example, again, the black tapes, we felt like we had to contextualize it for our listeners. Like, this is what you're listening to. Or someone who grew up in England would be like, I know exactly what I'm listening to within the first 30 seconds, without Mm -hmm. any context. Um, we felt like we we got to set the foundation so that we had to make everything sound like cereal because they're used to hearing cereal. Um, So I think critical language, I would love critical language to come in and and take up that space of here's how, here's the context and here's how we listen to these stories in this context. And then placing it, placing, um, what I love about criticism is is when it touches upon, when when it gives a piece, it's historical context. So that's where I feel like like I, I get really turned on when I read criticism, like when I read criticism about the Black Panther uh, film and I was like, oh yeah, everyone's touching upon, not everyone, but the, the, my favorite pieces were touching upon the historical context of that film uh, to educate viewers like me. Um, I would love for audio drama to get to that point in North America.
0: What, what I think is, it, so sort of related to what Paul was saying, um, and I think this is something that North American audio fiction is slowly moving away from, But I would say that every one of us here that has produced any kind of audio fiction um, fell prey to this a little bit. Uh, What I mean to say is that a lot of audio fiction from like 2010 onwards produced in the United States and Canada, because of that historical disjuncture, contained within it the instructions for how to listen to it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, And and, and what, what I mean by that is that all works... Represented at this roundtable, *Ars Paradoxica*, *The Black Tapes*, *Our Fair City*—all come from worlds in which the diegesis is a piece of recorded tape, right? Oh, absolutely.
5: Uh, and I mean, that's that's a huge trend, even up to this point. And I, I think right. at least part—I mean, at least part of it is that that diegesis covers for production errors that are inherent in small budget productions. And so that makes Mm -hmm. the medium more accessible. But I I agree with you. I I do think that like the found footage stylings were about reintroducing fictional audio to American audiences.
4: Mm
0: -hmm.
5: And now that we have that kind of critical
0: basis on, on mass right now that our audience understands, okay, sometimes there can be a podcast and it doesn't and the podcast itself does not have to take the form of a podcast if that makes sense Ooh, it can right. be a sitcom or a drama or or a thriller or whatever now i think we're starting to move away from that and the point that i usually make when i'm talking about this is the idea that you know our our understanding as film audiences has matured significantly from um lumiere brothers in like 1898 when you have the train pulling into uh, the Garda Leon everyone flees the theater because they think that the train is gonna come through the the screen. You know, it's not as though we're operating under that same expectation of verisimilitude that uh, Gandalf uh, needs to like lean down and tap. That yes, go ahead.
5: I just want to punch in to say uh, the the one part where that still comes up is putting like sounds of car engines revving and honking horns and sirens in audio because so many people listen in the car.
0: <laughs> oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. Stop doing that. Stop putting it in your songs. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Sloan Money City Maniacs. What a banger. And then every time I listen in the car, that's for Paul.
3: I'm Canada, I know. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel like, wait, this comment is putting me on blast. Is that what the kids say? <laughs> yeah,
0: you're you're one of those those cool rocker dad types.
2: I want to um, I don't know, throw a wrench in the works. I don't know if it's a wrench. Yes. Please do. Um Please do. <laughs> So we've been talking a lot about North America. Um, yes,
0: we have.
2: And I and when we are talking about conceiving this this codified critical language, um, in in this current era where we have the internet, the digital era where people can access you know pretty much anything, allowing for uh, governmental interference. Um, Having a critical language that we use to comment on this on this audio like art has to remember that not everything is from North america
5: um, oh absolutely, I think that it's great that we are here at the beginning of a critical discourse where we can actively take steps to decolonialize the foundations of that language. I think that I mean as as horrible as, like, Amerocentricism, oof, that's a hard word to say this early in the morning for me, um, that, that America is the center of the world or that that sort of perception, that way of looking at the world. I mean, it. as much as I love that it's crumbling because we don't deserve to be the center of all things always, um, to ignore the imperialist history there in in trying to get the language to spread ignoring the context of like that's how a lot of people see the world um is i i don't want to be critical with my words so i'm not being critical of you elliot at all but the word i'm looking for is foolish so i, right. I think that um, the, i I, aggr- I agree that as we build it going forward we should take every action available to us to decolonialize it
2: right that's what i was saying basically Good, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying Sorry, that, I you know, when we're, um, when we're writing this, um, cause we were talking about the gap in North American, uh, uh, history of this and knowledge of it and how it's like formed into the audio, but that doesn't exist in, in some places, right? It doesn't exist, uh, for instance, in, in the UK, but that's still English speaking. It also doesn't exist in some countries in Western Africa where, um, in, Oh, my God. I think it's in Rwanda. There is there is a country that has that was war torn for a very long time. And they created a um, audio drama to try and help fight the effects of having a longstanding civil war. And it is still running to this day and has been running since something like the 80s.
5: What is that? Are called? you talking about
0: the series or the war? The
2: series. The series. Is
0: it camera? Is this series. the thing from the university in Yaoundé? Uh,
2: I think yes, it is. But my my point is that you know when we are talking about filling in the history, some places don't need that history filled in because they they already have it.
1: They they have their own history that is just as valid.
2: Exactly. I uh,
1: you know I think I think there's something really valuable there in in not making it we as as kind of North American writers or creators are going to spread uh, a critical language so much as make sure that we learn from and, and collaborate with existing critical languages and histories, maybe.
5: Absolutely. I yes. think that just as it's important to raise up marginalized voices in the creation process that haven't had the opportunity to tell their stories, like, Critics also need to be aware of voices that haven't been heard in criticism yet and including and like lifting those letting the tide lift those boats just as you know there's been like a nice trend in podcast making that I hope continues that we talked at length about before that same sort of trend of lifting up new voices from new communities that haven't gotten a chance to say anything yet or say things in the wider discourse yet, is just as important for critics and the critical community.
2: Mm-hmm. I'd just like to, to uh, verify, yes, it is Rwanda. It is a Rwandan radio soap opera, which was conceived oh. as a way to heal psychological wounds after the Rwandan genocide, and 76% of Rwandans tune in still every single week. It's, <laughs> it's Musa Keweya. Um That's M-U-S-E-K-E-W-E-Y-A. Uh, and it does have an online website where you can play the audio.
0: I just looked up Music Hewea, Uh, and it is. Let me just read you the bottom of this this page. Music Hawaya is currently founded by SIDA under the Rwanda Peace Education Program and the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands in Rwanda. So even this even this project bears some of the burden of um, of colonial ambitions in the region. Anyway, that's that's all I wanted to say is that the, even this development theater yeah. uh, is uh, is enabled by uh, the fruits of empire, let's say, or at least the, the, the monies of um, external countries. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, again, thank you all so, so much for joining us here today. Um, and can we go down the list and share links of where to find your work?
2: Uh, You can find me at ElenaFernandezCollins.com and um, you can also find my work at TheBelloCollective.com.
3: You can find me at TheBigLoopPodcast.com on Twitter it's uh, at MrPaulBay on Instagram it's at MrPaulBay on Patreon it's Patreon slash I think it's Big Loop. You can find uh, our work
0: at RadioDramaRevival.com you can find me and my ridiculous musings on Twitter at at IcarusFloats or at Radiodrama. Uh, or in the archives of Art Fair
3: City.
5: You can find a lot of my independent work at whisperforge.org, which I just spent the past week making bright and shiny and new. Uh, You can listen to my stuff uh, wherever you get podcasts. Um, You can go find LeVar Burton Reads on Stitcher or Stitcher Premium. Um, And you can find out everything else I'm doing on Twitter at Misha, etc. M-I-S-C-H-A-E-T-C.
6: You can find me on Twitter at, at Will writes, That's W-I-L-W underscore rights. You can find me at willwilliams.reviews, on Polygon sometimes, on the podcast host, and on Discover Pods as well. And tuned in dialed up. Oh yeah. <laughs> and our <laughs> podcast tuned in dialed up, which is a podcast about podcasts.
1: Fantastic. And thank you all both for talking to us today and for all of the work you're doing to lift up this amazing medium.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Northwestern's Sound Arts and Industries program, head on over to sound.northwestern.edu, home to such luminaries as friend of the show, Professor Neil Verma. If you want to learn more about the various people on that panel, we'll have links to their work in the episode description. Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by seemingly endless plane travel throughout the month of January. I get on a plane. I get off a plane. I get on another plane. This coming weekend, I'm going back to California for a week-long work trip. Everything's great. Love to fly during a shutdown when my air traffic controller friend is working heroically without pay. Call your senators and tell them to yell at Mitch McConnell until he spontaneously develops a goddamn spleen. (sighs) Radio Drama Revival is also brought to you by Roast Beef. Yes, beef. Beef for vitality. Beef for depression. Beef for the one you love. What's red and warm like a coral reef brings and to squalor tears and grief don't stand there gopping and disbelief it's the kindest cut of kind, the beef someone hire me to make jingles I will jingle anything and now the credits our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger you can find his music on SoundCloud our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux our interviews producer is Eli McElveen our associate producer is Sean Howard Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalgh. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.